Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Hamilton now falls into the red zone under the province's current COVID-19 framework. We'll talk about the implications of that. And we also check in with Associate Medical Officer of Health for Middlesex London about their designation moving into the yellow zone and the impact that's having. The federal government is getting ready to give Canada's privacy laws some actual teeth. Is it actually going to work or is it just going to fall flat? We'll discuss that. And how is the transition going between Trump administration officials and the president-elect Joe Biden's team? Is it just some heel dragging going on? It's all coming up. Bill Kelly podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Hamilton is in the red zone under COVID-19. Uh, what does that mean? Paul Johnson is with us. He is the director of the emergency services uh, for COVID for the city of Hamilton. Paul, thanks so much for uh, joining us on a very busy day today. Hope you're well. Yeah, I'm doing. Uh, I'm doing well, Bill. Thanks uh, for having me. Well, you're a sports fan. You know what? Uh, you know when you're watching the football games on TV, like yesterday, and they say your team's in the red zone. That means they're about to score. It's quite a different connotation with COVID. What's going on here? Uh, well, it is, and and you know, I, a lot of people because they hear terms of both the vaccine and and light at the end of the tunnel and things i've heard some people say hey we're in the seventh inning of a baseball game and i'm put a little more context on that and say we may be in the seventh inning of a baseball game but it's the seventh game of the world series there is no tomorrow and we're still down by a number of runs yep. and i think that's the context we need to think about uh rising cases over the last week bill uh, averaging in and around 50 cases a day here at hamilton and the reality is we don't look necessarily day to day because they do fluctuate. It's what's that rolling average. And we got to a level with the revised uh, thresholds from the province of Ontario that put us into the red category, which is about controlling uh, the spread of, of coronavirus. And so while it's great news that vaccines are being developed and great news that we can see maybe a time frame even for that into 2021, the reality is here in November of 2020, uh, this virus is running through our community at a fairly good clip. It is impacting us with a number of outbreaks, including uh, outbreaks in very vulnerable settings. Uh, it has increased our death toll here in uh, Hamilton uh, of this, this virus. And so it was time to take some stronger action. And that's what kicked in at 12.01 this morning. Uh, some some significantly new restrictions around some of those activities that bring people together uh, in, in more of that social environment. And uh, that is what uh, needs to stop. Yeah, and let's talk about that because uh, this is not a shutdown. Uh, I don't, that, that's the next level, and hopefully we're not going to get there. Uh, but uh, there are some, some rather stringent uh, new protocols that are going to be in place as of today. Uh, there are uh, things like uh, cer certain spaces that were open for small performances, for instance, are now closed. So performance uh, areas, uh, people can tape and virtually uh, uh, show uh, events, but uh, there are, are going to be no uh, people watching those even in a small way. And we had seen some of that before from a restaurant perspective, significant new restrictions on in indoor dining. Uh, only four to a table, but only 10 as a maximum within that indoor space. So takeout, uh, outdoor dining where that's appropriate and, and set up uh, certainly continues without uh, further restrictions. Uh, recreation, uh, major restrictions on the number of people in recreation facilities. And in fact, across the entire facility, whether that's a, a multiplex or whether it's a single-use facility, as now 50 people. And in terms of team sport, no more scrimmages, uh, no more playing. It's really only about training now and no contact whatsoever. So 
this is the pullback we're seeing, Bill, which is to say uh, that, that we need to stop socializing. We need to stop uh, doing those types of activities that bring larger groups of people together. And sometimes that's with exercise, but it's that social element or that connected element that goes with it. Uh, we need to curtail that for a period of time and get these numbers down. And talking to Dr. Richardson over the weekend, uh, we believe we can. This is no march to an inevitability of moving into the gray uh, category, which is some some sort of a modified stage one, going more back to those uh, even more stringent restrictions. Uh, we can stop ourselves here, and we can start to take that march back. But we do have to stop people getting together, uh, going out and and, and interacting in, in more social ways. And that's why you've you've heard us all say that this is a time to spend time with those that you are living with, and basically nobody else. You don't get together with people indoors or outdoors and gather with friends and extended family. Uh, the only exception to that is people that are on their own, if they have some support that's necessary. Obviously, that uh, is, is a minor exception there. What's causing this? Because, uh, you know, just what everybody I talk to, Paul, says, well, we're obeying the rules. You know, I'm doing the face mask every time I have to go out, if I have to go out. Uh, we're trying to keep the gathering small. Uh, and, and I know that the long-term care facility problem is still with us, as it was in the first wave. And, and, and that's, that's something we need to be concerned about. And I know that, you know, the city's trying to do what they can. I still think the province has a larger role to play in that as well. But the, the, the numbers that we're seeing in the last week and a half, two weeks or so are, are pretty alarming. Is, is it just that we're not paying attention, even though we say we are? Well, I mean, the, the virus is the answer of whether we're doing what we should or not. And the, yeah. the virus is saying, no, we're not. And uh, again, this is not a magical being. Uh, it, it is transmitted by and large through that closer contact, through um, you know that droplet spread, and that's still what we're seeing happen. So I, I, I hear it as well. And, and yes, uh, obviously because of our numbers, the vast majority uh, are following the rules or not coming into contact with the virus, but uh, clearly enough are not. And clearly enough uh, transmission opportunities are still there. And when we even talk about these outbreaks, they're being brought in to these homes. And so that's the result of what's happening in the community. I'm not for a minute blaming our healthcare professionals. Um, but what circulates in the community will inevitably get into our care facilities. And I know that people say often, this has been about, you know, tragedy and long-term care, retirement homes. So why are the rest of us suffering? And the answer to that is, well, people work in these homes. People visit their loved ones in these homes. So what happens in the community inevitably will get into the more vulnerable population settings. And that's why all of us need to care about what's happening in the community, because that's the real way that we'll stop uh, larger outbreaks happening in these vulnerable settings. It's not the other way around where we can just say, yeah, protect those areas and do nothing else in the community. And so that's the back and forth we need. And back to your original point, Obviously, we're not doing that. Obviously, we're letting our guard down. Obviously, we're having too many people in too close a contact for too long a period of time. And most likely, that's happening more and more indoors, uh, where we know this virus spreads um, you know, a little bit easier. Well, there's another element to this, too, where I think some people are rationalizing and uh, having a discussion with a friend on the phone, by the way, not a face-to-face, uh, suggested that he was going to have some people over. And he said, well, they're in my bubble. I said, there are no bubbles anymore, are there, Paul? They're not supposed to be doing bubbles now. Uh, there aren't, and, you know, we've been pretty clear on that, and even the Premier, uh, you know, and, and the Minister have been talking about that as well, is that this is a time for us to be with those that we uh, we live with, and, and only in, in rare occasions would we be extending that. And if we do, uh, and have somebody come uh, come into our home 
uh, then they need to be wearing a mask. And we need to be treating it as though we are going into a public space, getting our groceries, uh, doing something else like that. And so this is a period of time over this next month or so where we really need people to stop looking at the ways around things. And whether that's a business, whether that's in our personal life, uh, and and deal with what is is in front of us and then say, so how do I make this work in creative ways and, quite frankly, in virtual ways? And I get it. We're over eight months into this thing from, from uh, you know, major start of, of cases in Hamilton and people are tired and they're sad and they're needing that, that support. But the, the answer is it only gets worse if we don't um, buckle down essentially and, and start to turn the curve on this thing because the next category doesn't bring with it uh, less restrictions. It brings with it more restrictions. And if you look at places like Peel and Toronto, and I'm not saying we're Peel and Toronto, but if you look at what's happening there, they've had to be more restrictive. We don't want to get there. And by the way, we don't think it's inevitable that we will. We believe with some of these stricter measures and people adhering to them that uh, that we can definitely uh, keep ourselves where we are and start to uh, to have these numbers go down, which will put us into less restrictive categories and get us back to doing what we all want to do. I got less than a minute left, but I do want to emphasize one other thing. With these new uh, color coding uh, uh, classifications that the government put in place as as of now, obviously. Uh, this is not on a week-to-week basis. We're in the red zone here for 28 days. Uh, no matter what the numbers look like next week, we're staying staying in the red zone for 28 days. That's that's part of this protocol, uh, which which I'm not ag- against, by the way. I think you know that I, I think that tells us that we're we're serious about this. Well, it is, and and we have to break these cycles. And so, as we know, that there's these incubation periods and infection periods, and so we need this to be for a little while. Uh, simply doing things for a week or two is is not going to uh, stop this chain of transmission that we want to. And so uh, we are here. Uh, it's time for Hamilton to, to again, not look for the ways around things, but to accept this, work with it, get our numbers back down. And then as we head into the middle of December, when we'll be re-looking at this with the province, uh, that, that uh, hopefully we can go into a, le- a less restrictive uh, period of time moving forward. Paul, as always, thanks so much for the update on this. Uh, best of luck with you and your staff on the great work that you're doing, and hopefully we'll see some downticking on some of these numbers. I will stay in touch. Thanks again. You bet. Thanks, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The numbers in London are disturbing. We're not, in the, not in the red zone, but disturbing nonetheless. Joining us to talk about that is Dr. Alexander Summers, who is the Associate Medical Officer of Health for Middlesex London Health Unit. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Glad to be with you. Good morning. Good to have you. I'm looking at some of the numbers here for London Middlesex, and uh, there there was some an uptick here. We said about 19 cases, new cases, uh, and and again the the problematic area here once again seems to be that under 40 group that seem to be the the worst offenders here. We've certainly seen an increase in cases over the last number of weeks when we look back to what we were at earlier in the fall, and as you said, it's happening amongst. Uh, people of all ages, but particularly that younger demographic under the age of 40. I think that highlights for us, it highlights for me, that we see transmission in those small social gatherings of 8 to 12 people where in any other year, those would be great events for people to have. However, in cases of a pandemic, that's where transmission happens, and that's certainly what we're seeing across the province and in the Middlesex and London region as well. It's kind of a unusual situation here because we know at least statistically what we've seen anyway that that demographic may not feel 
uh, the full impact of COVID-19, not as severe as somebody who may have a pre-existing condition or the frail and the elderly, uh, but they're transmitters, even if they don't feel it themselves, even if all they get is a runny nose, uh, they're carrying it. And that, I guess, is one of the reasons why you're seeing the spread. Exactly right. And I think sometimes it feels as though it may not be such a big deal because COVID doesn't necessarily predictably result in severe illness or death in this type of age group. However, as we see more and more people get ill, the probability that we get bad outcomes goes up. And furthermore, as we see more and more people in that age demographic get ill, the probability that they're going to transmit it to those who aren't going to tolerate it very well, those who are older or who have other medical conditions, goes up, goes up as well. So their increase in the case, regardless of who it's happening to, is concerning. And that's why we see restrictions like we've seen across the province now in place. We should mention, by the way, we just talked about Hamilton being in the red zone. Uh, London Middlesex is still yellow, which is the second lowest. Uh, and there are some restrictions uh, that, that are applicable for the yellow as well, Doctor. Do you get the sense, I know it's been a few days since this new uh, protocol has been in place here, the color code system, uh, but is there compliance in London with this? I think on the whole, there is, certainly amongst businesses and operators. We've seen excellent adherence and compliance with the regulations throughout the pandemic. I think what the biggest challenge is, is adherence to the informal sites. Like I said, it's really those informal gatherings, those 8 to 12 people gatherings where people are hanging out after school, after work, weekends, evenings, that type of thing. That's where we're seeing spread. And that, I think, is where we're having our biggest problems with adherence and compliance. So it's really important that people hear the message. Right now, we need to treat this as seriously as we did back in the spring you really should only have close contact with those who are in your household, full stop. Anything beyond that is increasing the risk to you and to your community. Are we suffering from a false sense of security here, Doctor? I mean, you know, another story today, and it's a good news story about the, the development of a vaccine. It's not ready yet, but I mean, some pretty positive results in the testing so far with Moderna. Uh, are we just kind of figuring, hey, the worst of this is over. I'll get vaccinated in another three or four months and everything's going to be fine. The worst of it isn't over. That's the challenge, is that a lot can happen between three to four months. When we look back at the early days of the pandemic and we think of the horror stories that we saw in other parts of the world or even down in New York State and New York City, those crises erupted over the course of weeks. Lots can happen in three to four months. And so we are not through the worst of this yet. We are not done with this fight. The pandemic is not over and it remains a serious thing doesn't mean that we can't take some encouragement and solace from the good news that we've seen over the last little while of early favorable results from the vaccine studies, but we're still a ways off from actually having a needle into an arm. And in the meantime, we really, really need to hold the line. And I guess the message here, if we've learned anything from the history over the last eight or nine months, uh, is that this can get out of control pretty quickly, as, as evidenced in Peel and, and the GTA and, and now Hamilton. I mean, you know, we were talking with them in yellow about two or three weeks ago, and now all of a sudden they're in the red zone. I mean, it can, it can really snowball, can't it? It can take off like a rocket. And this is why it's so critical that we act early on these things. And my hope is that the regulations that are now in place across the province are going to be triggered at earlier thresholds that will actually slow and stem the tide of the spread. But all that being said, it really is what we do, despite of those regulations right now, that regardless of what zone you're in, what town you're in, what county you call home, you're really maintaining close contact only with those in your immediate family. I can't emphasize that enough. 
Doctor, here's hoping uh, that uh, the numbers start to track downward in the next little while and uh, you can stay where you are, actually get down to a level below that too, as long as people are getting the message, I suppose. Thanks so much for the time today, Doctor. Great talking with you. Glad to join. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, federal government tells us that uh, they will introduce a bill probably as early as today uh, by the federal government that is going to overhaul privacy laws in this country. Now, you may remember there was a big fuss a couple of weeks ago when it was uh, discovered that Cadillac Fairview, the uh, owner of a number of large malls right across the country, were actually uh, videotaping uh, people as they walked into the mall and using that as, as profiling uh, for their customers. They said there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, there were people that disagreed with that. So uh, this law apparently is going to uh, not just, uh, I guess, deal with that, but a number of other issues that we have with privacy. So how effective is it going to be? Or is the cynic in us just saying, yeah, well, this is just window dressing. They can't really do much about this. Let's uh, bring Ian Lee into the conversation from the Smart School of Business at Carleton University in Ottawa. Uh, Ian, thank you for joining us on the program. Good to have you back with us today. Uh, My pleasure, Bill. Uh, Let me start on a cynical note here. In this day and age, in in this year, and with the technology we're facing, is it naive to think that we can demand privacy when we we go out in public and when we use things in, in the public realm? I think so. Yes, I do. Um, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have privacy laws. That's oh, sure. And I, for sure. But um, uh, what my my objection or criticism, I guess, of this bill is that uh, perhaps well, I have two fundamental criticisms. Number one, it's perhaps aiming too high, and uh, meaning we're trying to achieve a level of, of privacy that just can't be achieved when we are becoming a completely digitized society in every last respect, and I mean every last respect everything in government all governments are digitized today all tax records are digitized today uh you know speeding tickets are digitized medical health records are digitized the grades of my students are digitized i don't fill out a piece of paper anymore i haven't done that for 10 years i enter the grades digitally into a digital database i'm not advocating saying let's treat them in a cavalier fashion but what i'm trying to say is when you have massive gargantuan amounts of information in every organization large medium and small private sector public sector you know mistakes are going to happen and that's to my leads to my second point i don't think that the law the the bill excuse me or the proposed bill it, it distinguishes between innocent error and malevolence and and everybody understands this distinction if i walk down the street and i bump into you accidentally nobody's going to prosecute me for criminal assault if i bump into you and and say excuse me i'm sorry i didn't see you you know as opposed to i walk down the street i see you and i lay off and i just sock you right in the side of the head with my fist very deliberately everybody understands there's an enormous difference between those two things this bill doesn't make that distinction it doesn't distinguish between innocent mistakes that happen when a very complex i've worked in a whole bunch of large organizations over the years i was in a large american multinational when my 20s, then I was in the Bank of Montreal for five years. I was in Canada Post head office for two years. I worked in the Privy Council office supporting the Prime Minister while I was doing my PhD. I'm in Carleton. I mean, every organization, we have hundreds of employees in IT. The banks have thousands. And, and so we have to distinguish between someone who is if, if malevolently trying to take your information and sell it to make money and exploit you, as opposed to just innocent mistakes where there's a screw-up because we're dealing with very complex technology. And I don't see that recognition, at least so far in the information that's been released. I don't see that distinction in the bill. It's just one-size-fits-all. 
all data breaches are bad, 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 and and I don't think that they're making that distinction, and they should be. There's a, a number of different things, and you're right, the, the, the meat and potatoes of this thing sound wonderful, but the nuances that could be included in this, uh, I, I don't know if, if everybody can grasp exactly what those are. And, and your point's well taken. You know, is this, is, was this done on purpose? Was it done to harm? Yes. Uh, do we even, are we even fully comprehending, Ian, just how extensive of that, that information is and where it is? Uh, there's a clause here in uh, uh, the the overview that they said for this bill. Uh, this uh, digital charter they're talking about will include legislation to give Canadians what they call appropriate compensation when their personal data is breached. We're all going to get rich, Ian, because that happens on a pretty regular basis now. Uh, let me go one step further. Um, they start, if we're going down that American road, the Americans are far more litigious than we are. I'm not being yeah. anti-American, I'm just describing it. Mm-hmm. They're vastly more litigious. They'll sue on the drop of a pen for the most minor uh, offense. And it just seems this is part of the Americanization. They talk in the thing about Canadian values. This isn't the Canadian values. The Minister Bain said, oh, we want to have Canadian values support privacy. No, this is the Americanization of our system, and it's going to drive up costs. Because let me be very, very clear. Any cost imposed on a business is passed on by the business to you and me. Sure. There's no deep down in the ground, deep underground, a vault of hidden wealth and resources that's used to pay for whether they be fines or penalties or whatever you want to call them. When government passes those, they are ultimately a BF paid by the business, and then they just simply pass it on through higher prices. And and so my point being that, you know, this all seems so decent and so, you know, wonderful, and some of us are going to get rich. Well, what that means is if some of us do get rich because we're able to get, you know, a compensation check for, I don't know, 10000 or 50000 or something, there's no free lunch. That's cost is going to be passed on along with all the other costs, including shoplifting is a cost. They pass that on to the price of the goods and services. And so there is no free lunch. And this bill silently, unwittingly, assumes there's some kind of a free lunch. We can go after the bad guys, and we're all winners. Well, all I see is prices going up as a consequence of this. The other element to this, too, is, is like you say, it's intent. Uh, and they said they want to do something about uh, these places, these data collectors that uh, can sell that information. Does that mean they're going to outlaw, outlaw Facebook? Because they've been doing that for years. That's what they're there for. Exactly, exactly. Um, I, I mean, as I said a moment ago, I mean, we have to distinguish between malevolence, where someone's trying to, you know, uh, do something illegally, if it is illegal, uh, with your data. Um, you know, break into your bank account to take money out of your bank account illegally. Everybody understands that's completely wrong. It's criminally wrong. Uh, as distinct from, you know, data breaches where there's just been a mess up in the IT department. And, 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 and you know, so we really do have to make that, that very important distinction. But it, the second point you're raising is even larger. I mean, the whole social media realm, I mean, digital everything, I mean, I'm talking in the private sector, is based on collecting information. I mean, Amazon does this, Facebook does this, Microsoft does this, <laughs> and they collect data. Canadian Tire, I'm sure, is doing it. Home Depot's doing it. So are we going to essentially try and shut down uh, social media, um, social marketing? Um, this is where it gets very dicey because we've created a whole new uh, huge economy where there's millions of people working in these companies, and now we're saying, or seem to be saying, I'm not sure if they understand what they're saying in the government, they seem to be saying that this is all very bad, and, and I don't see that as bad. I don't care if they use my information. I, one thing I really do care about, Bill, and I really care about this very badly, deeply, I don't want anybody to get into my bank account online and take money out of my bank account. 
Mm-hmm. I thought I really, really worry about, and I think many Canadians do. I don't want someone to take my assets, okay? Because I'm not rich. I mean, I'm not poor, but I'm not rich. I don't have lots of money. And uh, whereas if someone, you know, so they get an image of me because I'm walking down the street on a public street, well. <laughs> If you're really that worried about it, don't walk down a public street. Stay at home and hide under your under your bed. I, I'm not being fu- funny or flippant. We've always been exposed to that from time immemorial. People can look at you walking down the street. I mean that that's been true before digital media existed, and so well, we uh, we have to distinguish that. Yeah, we had that discussion, uh, that debate, I guess, with uh, closed circuit TV cameras, which are everywhere now. I mean, you, just, yes, you know, yes. you can go get money out of your ATM. I mean, they're there. Do we have a, a, a full understanding, though, Ian, about information sharing? I mean, before all this digital stuff happened, going back a generation or so, you always get worried about the fact that you know you'd, you'd send a, a check off to McLean's because you wanted a magazine subscription. And then all of a sudden you'd start hearing from Chatelaine and other places because right. they share information. Of course they do. Uh, and that still on goes on. That's not illegal. You're right. This has been going on way, way, way before digital media. It's just that the digital media is is better at it. They're more efficient sure. because the machines, the computers, are very powerful. They're very high speed, and they can crunch enormous gargantuan amounts of data in very tiny, you know, literally a nanosecond. In the old days, and I mean pre-computer, big computer days, someone had to manually calculate that information and capture that information. You know, you'd have sometimes people standing on a street corner doing surveys. And they'd hire young students to do that. Well, we, we're much more sophisticated now because we use your cell phone records or your, or your website visits. And they get better data. They, I mean, the good news is, is that it's anonymous. I mean, they're not using it to exploit me. They're just using my preferences along and aggregating it with millions of other people to find out what we are collectively doing. It's not that different from a public opinion poll. It's not that they want to know what Ian Lee is doing. It's they want to find out what... Millions of people like Ian Lee are doing to find out their preferences for you name it. Well, you know, aftershave or women's cologne or, or a bottle of beer or whatever. And, and so a lot of this advertising is driven by aggregating, adding up the preferences of gazillions of us. They're not after our individual information because they're trying to find out individually what we're up to so they can spy on us. They just want to find out what we are buying and what we're interested in buying so they can try and Sell us more stuff. I don't see that as evil. No, I, well, as a market. matter of fact, if they're going to have a debate about this, and when this gets debate, the first thing you're going to hear from the business community, you know this from your, your vast experience in business, is they say, wait a second, uh, we do this, to, to, we're, we're doing consumer profiling. That's how we okay. sell our product. That's how we design our product. That's okay. how we know, we know that we're going to make a diet cola not, instead of because exactly. of consumer profiling. She says, if you don't allow us to do that, we're lost. And that's a, it's a valid point. Bill, you're absolutely right. In fact, I'll go further. What do we think Satscan's doing? They don't just take the population you know, survey, the census. They're, they've got tons, because I have my students using it every day of every week. You know, they have tons of data in there on, you know, what percentage of Canadians smoke, what percentage of Canadians don't smoke, what percentage of Canadians are homeowners, what part of the country are they homeowners, what percentage of Canadians are using natural gas versus electricity versus wood versus propane. They have gargantuan amounts, and it's not just in Stats Canada. You can go into Transport Canada's database and find out how many people own a car, what part of the country, how old is the car on average. I'm not kidding you. Governments collect gargantuan amounts of information on our behavior. I call it our behavior, meaning what we do. And, uh, and governments do it and corporations do it. And they do, the government does it to create better public policy. And companies do it to create better products, more targeted to the per people that want to buy, I don't know, red plants, you know, poinsettias. 
uh, as opposed to, I don't know, petunias, uh, as opposed to I'm trying to buy right now a brand new desktop computer. You know, and uh, that's what they're doing. They're trying to come up with target to the customer to give that customer what they are looking for, whether it's a new movie theater that they want to go to or a, a new car or whatever. And I think this bill, it's, it's part of the Ottawa bubble, I guess. You know, they see sort of everyone out there and across the country and, and in business as malevolent or potentially malevolent when they're not. And, they're, and, and that's why I said um, at the very beginning, we have to distinguish between the tiny, tiny percentage of bad actors out there who are malevolent and the overwhelming majority of people, 99, probably 0.9% of people that are not. And that's true in every profession, too. You know, you've got, you know, the odd, you know, terrible professor, but the vast majority of professors are fine. Same with police, same with journalists, same with doctors. And we can't assume that we're all bad actors, as this bill, I think, seems to suggest. It's got to be more nuanced, surgical, and targeted. Well, exactly. And because and, I share your concern. I mean, I don't want, there's certain information of mine I don't want to be made public. I don't want anybody to see it. You know, bank accounts, things of that nature. I get that. But yeah. for God's sakes, and, and, and look at, I understand the, the, the people are being upset with the Cadillac Fairview incident from a couple of weeks ago. But at the same time, if you're walking into a mall, uh, you, you can't expect privacy. That's all there is to it. You know, anybody that's watched those, the Born Identity movies know that you know, they can track you if they want to. They can do that now. Uh, but you're right. For the bad actors, uh, I think one of the things they should be doing here, and I think the ministers talked about this, is is giving the privacy commissioner more power uh, to be able to levy fans, fines against the bad actors. They're, now they don't have that power. I, yeah. I don't have a problem with that. Let's have that discussion. But let's not go crazy about this and just assume that everybody is going to be fully protected because they're not. Exactly. That is exactly my point. Yes, go after the bad actors. Have authority to go after the bad actors who are doing something intentional, meaning deliberate, not an accident, and secondly, that's going to cause harm. So I think there's two things the bill has to focus on. Those who are intentionally trying to do something bad, and B, that it's going to do harm, and not just because people say, I don't like corporations looking at what I'm buying. That's not evil. That's not illegal. We have to distinguish, you know, A, the, the intent, and B, the underlying activity. Is it genuinely wrong? Breaking into my bank account to take money out of my bank account without my permission is clearly and unequivocally wrong. But and so I, I think this is this this bill is 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 overreach. It's you know they're sort of whacking everybody and everything without making those important distinctions between intent and the underlying activity. Is it genuinely properly wrong? Are they trying to harm somebody? And that to me is is the two critical distinctions that this bill is not making. Stats Canada says about 57% of Canadians online reported experienced a cybersecurity incident in 2018. Uh, you can't eliminate those. You can you can mitigate the impact though by going in with eyes wide open. Exactly, and and what I'm worried about here is it's a lot harder to go after the real bad guys. I'm talking the cyber yep. criminals, yep. and so what do we do? We go after legitimate businesses and pour extra push push them and impose much extra greater extra costs on them that they pass on to me, and they're not the people that are causing the problem in the first place. You know, it, it's sort of it's sort of analogous, and I'm sure you've heard this sometimes from Canadians. You know, look at that. They 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 go after you know because I'm speeding down the road. I'm going 10 miles over the speed limit, and they put all those resources into catching innocent, law-abiding people who might be doing a little tiny bit of wrong, going 10 kilometers over the speed limit, when they're not going after the people breaking and entering and and causing physical harm and violence to human beings. You know, it's that sort of argument. Focus on the real crimes, not on the 
pretend or make-believe crimes that are not harmful. Always a pleasure, Ian. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Over the weekend, it seemed, for about a minute and a half anyway, uh, that Donald Trump seemed to have conceded the election to Joe Biden with one of his tweets. He backtracked not too long after that, of course. Uh, will this lack of concession actually impact politics for years to come? And how's that impacting the quote-unquote transition that is supposed to be going on right now? Joining us to talk about this is uh, Robert Yoon, who is the Howard R. Marsh Visiting Professor of Journalism. He's covered five presidential campaigns for CNN, has prepared moderators for more than 30 presidential debates from the University of Michigan. Uh, Professor, thank you so very much for the time. Great to have you on the program today. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Let me, I guess, delve into the constitutional aspect without getting too deep, I guess, into the legal weeds here. Uh, is what Donald Trump doing right now hurting the transition process, or is this just somebody who's dragging his heels and, and Biden can move along with this anyway? Well, it's definitely slowing down the process, for sure. And it is a departure from normal procedure of what happens when uh, when one presidential administration gives way to the to the next. Uh, I think the impact of it um, is, is hard to say, but, you know, the transition is a very complicated uh, process that involves hundreds and hundreds of, of people involved in a very detailed co- uh, coordination and negotiation to uh, pa- pass things off from one administration to the incoming administration. And that can affect, you know, small government programs that maybe affect only, uh, you know, a handful of, 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 of Americans, or it could affect, you know, very large systems dealing with national security. And in this case, obviously, uh, there's, there's also the uh, ongoing coronavirus pandemic. There's just a lot of opportunity for uh, details to fall through the cracks. And, you know, anytime you have any type of transition in a, in a workplace, there are those opportunities. But with the, with the, uh, institution as large as the as the U.S. federal government, uh, those opportunities for things to fall through the cracks uh, with a shortened transition period are, are even more uh, magnified. Well, I, th- I guess, you know, it's not just a matter of, as you mentioned, Professor, just showing them where the washrooms are in the building. I mean, there's the, it's, it's the security okay. issues that I think time and time again people are talking about. And I think it was Anderson Cooper mentioned uh, like, late last week on one of his shows uh, that there was a report that was done not too long after 9-11 that indicated that the, the poor transition that occurred between uh, the, the outgoing Clinton administration and George W. Bush uh, may have had some influence on the fact that they weren't totally up to speed on what was going on with al-Qaeda and with Osama bin Laden and people of that name. Not the, it was not the major cause by any stretch, but that was that was really because of the, the dropping chads, the hanging chads, and it took so long to actually declare who the president was. Uh, this one's man-made. I mean, this is a situation where this administration, I, I guess, uh, has been ordered, I mean, we would assume, because there seems to be some unanimity there, uh, to not take part in any of these things. And there's a lot of very confidential information that needs to be shared, isn't there? Uh, yes, definitely. And, and it certainly seems like it's, it's part of a, a concerted uh, effort to, uh, on, on, on the part of the administration to hold the line and for no one to uh, give any, uh, to, to yield at all in terms of, uh, to, to yield at all to the in- incoming uh, administration. Uh, and you're absolutely right about uh, the situation in 2000, the 9-11 Commission report, which kind of did a, uh, a, a look back at what, what went wrong leading up to the events of 9-11, one of the things they pointed out was that because of the shortened transition period after the 2000 election, uh, the, yeah, the, the 
the uh, Clinton administration and the Bush administration didn't have as much time to uh, handle a lot of those details that, uh, or, or to brief the fully brief the uh, incoming administration all, all the details of national security. And in that case, the election was uh, wasn't resolved until mid December, so it was a much much mm-hmm. more shortened transition period. That, that that situation is a little bit different than what's happening now because sure. um, I think every. The, the whole presidential election was up in the air. We didn't know who was going to win uh, because of uh, because we did, the, the whole election uh, rested on the results in Florida, and those those results were uh, so close that it took a while to uh, figure out what what the resolution was going to be. It took the Supreme Court actually. In in this case, it's much different, where uh, where where there's a uh, consensus among the uh, independent news organizations that examined the election results and arrived at this conclusion that uh, Joe Biden will win the win the election. So it, it, the, the election really, even though the Trump campaign is still pursuing legal actions in a number of states, uh, it's really a different situation from 2000, where we really did not know uh, on, from day to day who was going to be the next president. The day after, and I guess the days after uh, the election, uh, seems so long ago now, Professor, uh, there, that talk was existing again, that uh, that the courts were going to be involved in this. Uh, there was going to be litigation upon litigation. Uh, there was a lot of uh, speculation that the, the Trump administration wanted this to get as far as the Supreme Court, uh, where he thought he was going to get a favorable opinion. Uh, given the numbers that we've seen right now, and I know there's going to be a recount in Georgia and, and one in Wisconsin, uh, and still some challenges in Pennsylvania right now, but is, is that court challenge or that climb up the the judicial ladder still a possibility here well the the trump campaign's uh, legal strategy so far hasn't hasn't uh quite panned out uh as as of yet uh they've they've uh received a lot of uh unfavorable uh decisions from from state level courts uh but there's no sign from the the trump uh, campaign that they're going to uh, re- relent with any of the, the legal strategies. Uh, so, in, 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 in that respect, the uh, I think the legal challenges will will uh, continue. But uh, in in terms of um, the, the litigation that happens after a contested election, like in in 2000, everything starts in in state court. Uh, because elections are run at the state level, mm-hmm. and it's only when a an issue uh, reaches some kind of uh, federal constitutional question that it jumps the track from the state courts to the federal courts, and then you know possibly up, ultimately up to the Supreme Court. Uh, so far, that has not happened yet in any of these uh, cases. The the the, uh, the 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 challenges being raised at the state level uh, have really stuck to uh, issues that the, that the states control, and and it hasn't. It hasn't jumped that track yet uh, in, into a federal court. But, yeah, definitely, I think that uh, part of the overall legal calculus that the Trump campaign had going into the election was that, well, you know, we now have a friendly court on our side, a little friendlier with the uh, appointment of Amy Coney Barrett. But uh, there there doesn't seem to be yet any uh, legal path that is that is heading uh, th- that is leading the election to the Supreme Court just yet. 
I, I mean, wordsmithing plays a role in this. I mean, even when Bill Barr put his uh, uh, letter out there last week asking uh, prosecuting attorneys to investigate, uh, I think the, cra- the phrase was substantial uh, voter fraud or whatever, because uh, there's always going to be some examples of 10 ballots here, 15 ballots there, etc. But uh, in every election, no matter what, uh, how democratic the society is. But what it, how much, where do you go for, for the legal uh, expertise and the opinions on this? Because uh, last week, of course, the, the reporting was that the uh, uh, bipartisan committee, which by the way, was set up by Donald Trump himself, uh, has already looked into this and said that there was no proof at all of any substantive voter fraud or irregularities in that. Uh, that's not a legal opinion, though. That's just from the committee. But does that have any weight at all? Well, I, I, I don't think I don't think it'll dissuade the Trump campaign from pursuing its legal uh, uh, course of action. Uh, uh, those those seem to be continuing, uh, you know, in, in the face of uh, election results that have uh, margins that are really outside the realm of what's what's conceivable in a in a voter fraud situation. I don't think anyone disputes, as you said, that you know voter fraud happens um, in every election on, on some level, but there really isn't any kind of uh, evidence or any kind of history of the level of voter fraud. Uh, a wi- widespread coordinated voter fraud constituting millions and millions of votes in states across the country that the that the Trump campaign is is alleging and the the legal challenges that started after uh, uh well not just after election day but also after uh last uh Saturday when um the news organizations projected Biden the winner uh yeah those those strategies really didn't uh, didn't really take that uh, course in, 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 into into account. Uh, you know, with I, I started my career at CNN in the 2000 cycle, so I was actually uh, learned a lot about elections covering the Florida recount, and I've covered a few recounts since then as well. And the 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 most you can hope for in terms of uh, a, a recount victory is maybe to change uh, a few hundred a few hundred votes uh, from from one side to the other, and um, you know and if you're if you're more than that if you're more than that many votes behind a uh, thousand votes five thousand votes ten thousand votes there really is uh, no history of of a recount. Or, or legal challenges of shifting that many that many votes in mul- especially in multiple states across the country talk about the election itself if you could i i, I want to get your perspective on what you saw uh, and i want to harken back i watched the uh, the cnn uh, special report over the weekend about joe biden and his, his, his career and his ascendancy to where he is today uh, I mean, in, in January of this year, Professor, I mean, this guy was, especially after the first couple of, of uh, uh, primaries, he was down and out and, uh, and being counted out by just about everybody. Uh, we know about Claiborne and what happened in South Carolina as a pivotal point in that, but there seemed to be uh, an incredible amount of momentum that built up from that night uh, that, it, well, didn't let up until Election Day, really. Yeah, there were no shortage of Joe Biden political obituaries that were being written, uh, you know, at the beginning of the year. You know, and and uh, Biden really uh, has broken uh, uh, some major political uh, trends in terms of uh, his performance 
in those early primaries. Uh, there, there's never been a, uh, a, 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 a there's never been uh, uh, an incoming president who lost Iowa. You know, came from fourth place in Iowa, came in fifth place in New Hampshire, and you know, and, and to lose the first three contests of the of the calendar, and who, who would go on not only to win the nomination but the the White House. So, uh, you know, I think one thing that that means for future elections is that uh, there'll be a lot of examination, I think probably by both parties in terms of uh, th- does the does the calendar, the, the political, the primary calendar that we have now, does that still make sense? Does it still make sense? Is, is Iowa still important? Is New Hampshire still important? Or should those be reexamined, especially uh, after the uh, difficulty that the Iowa Democratic Party had this year with uh, holding their caucuses, but yeah, definitely, uh, yeah. Joe Joe Biden's um, uh, camp- campaign was on was on its last legs af- after Iowa, New Hampshire, and and Nevada, and uh, yeah, the 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 level of the comeback that he experienced with the South Carolina primary is really uh, it, it's really unprecedented the way the way that uh, how far behind he was. And that how the rest of the field uh, ended up uh, consolidating around him after that South Carolina uh, win. Yeah, I've never seen it happen that quickly. Uh, you know, that everybody just seemed to fall into line. I think Bernie was the last one, obviously, and that was to be expected, I suppose. Uh, but uh, and they campaigned for him too. It wasn't just okay. You know, they were not just paying lip service. There seemed to be a sincere, concerted effort to say, okay, he's the candidate, and we're going to get behind him. That doesn't often happen. Yeah, you know, I heard some reporting uh, that uh, maybe President Obama had gotten involved at that point in the campaign, uh, you know, coaxing people out uh, of the race to get behind Joe Biden. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but um, I, I, I think what uh, you saw was that, um, you know, people remembered the lesson of 2016, where uh, on the Republican side, there was a field of 17 candidates, mm-hmm. uh, several, you know, a bunch of them were, were moderates. And then, of course, there was Donald Trump and, uh, you know, uh, the, and, then, and then others from the conservative wing of the party. And uh, there was always the question is, can anyone stop Trump? And uh, the, you know, the establishment wing or the moderate wing of the, of the Republican field never coalesced behind a single candidate. And so that Trump's you know, 20 to 25 percent of the of the vote at each at each contest was enough to win uh, because, you know, the opposition vote was diffused among all these candidates. So I think that was something that a lot of candidates this time around kept in mind that, um, you know, if we in terms of the, the moderate wing of the Democratic Party, if they didn't want Bernie Sanders to win the nomination, you know, or, you know, that they would have to uh, coalesce behind a single candidate. And I think once that, uh, once Joe Biden was able to kind of right his ship and, uh, show that he was still in the race, uh, uh, that, that, that's what ended up, ended up happening. I think Mike Bloomberg thought that he might be the person that, uh, everyone could, uh, rally behind, uh, despite the billion dollars that he spent on the campaign, but didn't, didn't quite work out for him. Well, it's a fascinating process to watch as it unfolds, and uh, uh, with a few unexpected twists and turns as it goes along. Uh, it was great to get your perspective on this today. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Hey, thanks, Bill. I appreciate it. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.